For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, I uh, am grateful for your word. I'm grateful for your church. I'm grateful for mission. I'm grateful for all of us who are here today. Um, God, I just pray that I would be a, uh, a useful vessel for you, that you would speak through me, that I would just be able to deliver the message that you have prepared for us. Let all of us, Father, be able to listen and kind of receive what word you have given us. This is probably the most valuable gift we're going to get Um, today, like it's just a beautiful thing to be able to hear your word in the context of your church on your day. And so I I pray that it is a blessing to everyone here, even to my own ears as I hear your message. May I be blessed by it. Um, Please be with us today, Father. Please uh, continue to secure us in the hope and in the goodness of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Excuse me. Um, okay, so before I jump into things, I want to say, first of all, I said this during my sermon on Judas a few weeks ago, and that's that uh, with this text in particular, I think that there are kind of a lot of, I think that based on just everything that is covered in this text, a lot of people, when they look at it for the first time, are going to have like a lot of exclamation points going off in their head of like, oh man, I hope he talks about this, or I hope he talks about that. And I just have to acknowledge that um, because of kind of how I plan sermons and how I really try to keep things with as narrow a scope as possible, and so I'm not just hitting a thousand different points and it kind of comes across as scattered, uh, I may not address like the exclamation point that went off for you when we started uh, reading through this passage. And that's, and that's totally fine because if you guys do have like kind of residual questions that you would like to chat with me about, I would love to talk about it after service. Feel free to just be like, hey, you didn't mention this or you, know, you said this or whatever the case may be and I'd like to hear more. That's totally fine. I would love to talk more about that. So... Um, as we get into things, there, there's a really interesting story uh, that happened in, the, in early church history around like the third century. This was a time uh, where, the, where in Rome, the Christians who were still like a very small like minority of the population, they had just come out of this really, really heavy period of persecution. Like they were, uh, churches were getting burned down, pastors and and practitioners of the Christian faith were getting killed left and right. One of the most brutal periods of persecution that ancient Rome or or, uh, the Roman Empire ever experienced. And so coming out of it, uh, one of the things that happened in this, in this period was that they would find people who were priests or bishops within the church because they had in their possession the scriptures. And at that time, they didn't have like millions and billions of Bibles that you could find in every hotel room and around in every bookstore, you know? So these were very important to have these texts. And so what would often happen is they would threaten the priests with death. And they would say, if you don't give us these scriptures for us to destroy, we're going to kill you. And a lot of these priests ended up doing so to kind of save their hides. And so 
coming out of this period of persecution, you know, Christianity was legal again, this horrible period, this horrible black cloud that was over the church was no longer there. A lot of the dudes who were, who were these priests were kind of coming back and, and pleading, like wanting to repent, wanting to be restored to their position and be able to be a part of the church, even though when the test was there for them to really stand up for Jesus, they had failed. And with the, the understanding the church had of, of repentance and restoration, they said this was fine. Your sins can be forgiven even though you messed up pretty badly. There were some in the church, however, who were very upset about this. They, they, in their minds, they were like, you failed the calling of Christ, which was, to put your, was, which was to put Christ before your life. You failed. So you don't get to be restored to the church, especially restored to office. And so they, they caused a bunch of conflict for a while. These dudes were called Donatists. That's going to be on the exam later. Um, but they were called Donatists. And after stirring up a lot of conflict and even starting riots and just creating all these issues, they eventually kind of fled to North Africa where they did their own thing and then over time just kind of evaporated. They don't really exist anymore. But in their minds at this point, what justified the schism, and this was one of the first big divides that happened in church history, what justified it for them was that they couldn't reconcile this issue, this, this conflict of values. They said they, they, they're completely off the mark here. They must not truly be the church or a church worth like fellowshipping with. And so they separated themselves and isolated themselves and eventually, historically, just kind of evaporated into obscurity. And so... You know, obviously, we're not preaching from uh, the book of church history. We're preaching from Galatians. And in Galatians, we're, we're at the end of the third chapter. And we, we've, we've mentioned the story of the Galatians before, but I'll try to breeze through it quickly. The, the church in Galatia, there are people preaching there who are saying, no, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish Christians, need to conform to the cultural customs of Jews in order to really be Christians. If they're not conforming in that way, then they're not real Christians. They're not really bought by the blood of Jesus. They're not really made new. They're just, they're just outsiders. And so Paul is explaining to them, like, you guys will understand, when you come to faith in Jesus, you are made new and you are joined into the church altogether. Faith is the only mark of what makes someone a believer. It's not their actions. It's certainly not their ethnicity or anything else like that. It is solely by faith we are saved, and it's only by faith that we're united to the rest of our siblings of faith. And so Paul, I think, is trying to communicate two things here. One is he's trying to reiterate the importance that we are only saved by faith and not by anything else, which I think is something that Ray did a really great job of representing last week. But I think the second point that Paul is trying to impress to the church in Galatia is the beauty of the church, like the beauty of the church of Jesus. And that's what we're going to spend the crux of our time talking about today. And this was a weird sermon for me to write 
uh, mostly because the way that I felt like I was kind of putting it together, it was really like this, I won't say stream of consciousness, because if, if I say that, you guys are going to be like, I'm going to tune out. <laughs> but I, I think it was more like this like linear, like singular brush stroke. It wasn't like point, 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 conclusion. It was just like, this is what I have to say. Like maybe there's just one point to this sermon. And if there is just one point to this sermon, it would be verse 26 of Galatians 3, which is you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm probably going to say that a bunch of times. So you are all sons of God, sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I think that many of us as Christians fall into a similar complication. I don't think many of us are, are, are Donatists. I don't think any of us are fleeing to North Africa because of uh, disagreements about priests in the Roman Empire. I don't think that's a particular issue these days. But I do think that many of us fall into this complication where we have a particular value or something that we hold very highly. And when we see that opposing value or maybe something that doesn't mesh with that value within the church, we tend to maybe not outright say that it's heretical or maybe not even like, you know, make, make much of a conflict altogether. But there becomes this sense of like otherness and sameness where we're almost like drawing these invisible lines, these invisible factions between us. I'll give you some examples. Uh, you know, it's, it's very common for many people in the church to have what, what's called like a high view of worship. Uh, you're, not, you're not really finding a lot of, you don't really connect with like the contemporary songs and things like that. And so you're more likely to go to a church that values things like hymns and, and formal attire and, you know, organs and maybe an acoustic guitar, maybe if it's like Youth Sunday or something. And I don't think anything, any of that is problematic in and of itself. I think that's perfectly fine to have different values and interests and longings even. But what often happens is uh, the people who, who find themselves in this camp of like high worship start to kind of like think of those low worshiping, you know, sandal wearing, sandal wearing, you know, people who like they don't really take God's worship very seriously. And so there becomes like this we are having this true value of loving and serving and worshiping God. And then there's like the other guys a little bit. And on the flip side, there are those who love contemporary worship services because in their mind, it's not so much about reverence as much as accessibility. They want a church that friends and, and non-believers can come to and not feel like they're going to a place where they're speaking a totally different language. And so they tend to look at the, the organs and the very formal kind of like dated looking views of church. And they say, well, those people are completely disabled. They don't have any idea how to actually run a church. And so there becomes this like, there's, there's me and there's us, right? And then there's the others. Or even, I mean, and we've mentioned this to, to great extent, but there's also how, how we may view our faith through, more, through a lens that may fit to one political side of the spectrum compared to another. Again, there's nothing wrong with having specific values on one side versus the other. The difference is, or I would say the problem is, when possessing one set of values starts to make you think like the others are lesser Christians, like they're not truly part of the church that you feel like you actually belong to, 
there can be this sort of like self-righteousness that bubbles up into us and it really creates fractures within the church that Jesus has built. I think that's maybe one of the key words that I want to play around with today is the word church. Because I think all of us know it's like, you know, church isn't just the building. Like, I think we've all, you know, we've been to that, you know, Awana session where that was beaten to death. We know that. We know church is not just walls and a, and a ceiling. We know that church is like, is a body, is a body that is, that is unified and connected. But I think that even then, we tend to, to, to almost section it off. Like there's like the good church. There's the church that, that cares about people. There's the church that really values revering God. There's the church that's, that's solid. There's the church that's on the right side. And then there's the other church, the, the technically saved, right? The technically born again. But those who are missing out on a few values that keep them from being, you know, God's favorites. So what do we actually consider when we talk about what the church is? Well, I'm going to go back to the verse that I repeated already. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the mark. There's no, there's no daughters and sons and then stepdaughters and stepsons and, you know, cousins and, and, and uncles. Like, it's all like you are sons and daughters of God through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. You are just as much a son and just as much a daughter as the person standing next to you through faith and through faith alone. And then we can follow this verse into our, our passage for today. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now this makes it even deeper. Now it's saying, if you were baptized into Christ, which does represent, of course, the ritual of baptism, you know, one of the sacraments that we still hold to as Protestants, but also a baptism in like, did you die with Jesus as he died? Did you receive new life with Jesus as he received new life when he was resurrected? If we have been baptized into Jesus, we have put him on. We bear his identity. There is a sense in which God sees the purity and the perfection and the beauty of Christ when he gazes on us once we have faith in him. That is not something that varies from person to person within the church. It is something that unifies and stitches us together perfectly. And then it goes into the next passage. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you were Christ's, then you were Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I love these three specific examples that it gives because all of these examples were what were seen in the ancient world and beyond to be uh, fundamentally distinct, like not ir irreconcilable. You've got a Jew and you've got a Gentile. They're different. They don't become the same. That's like, it, it's, it's, it's oil and water. They are completely distinct. And yet what this passage is saying is that through Christ, through faith in Christ, 
there is now still a distinction in that like Jews don't just stop becoming Jews when they become Christians, but it is to say that there is an equality and there is a unity and there is a brotherhood that they have that they never could have had before. There is no male nor female. That doesn't mean, you know, obviously, it doesn't mean we just lose our gender or our sex when we become Christians. But what it does mean is that in the light of the obvious, enormous disparities between males and females throughout history, there is no favoritism between the two of them. There is an equal plane of love and affection that, we bo- that they both receive from their father. Even slaves and masters. Could you imagine how like, controversial it would be to look, to, to be in this time period and to acknowledge that both slave and a master are actually both equal in the eyes of God? No favorite, no one has a, has a leg up on the other, but they're both parallel. That's what this passage is saying. I think what makes the work of Christ so groundbreaking is, is this. It created this brand new paradigm where faith in Christ united us not just to salvation, but also to Jesus himself. That's a thing about the church that we often, I think, forget. I think it was something that really showed out to me as I was working on this sermon. It's that when we are together as the church, we're not just together as like Jesus's best buds, but we're also together and Jesus is present with us. You know, there is the passage from Matthew 18 that says where two or three are gathered in his name, uh, there I am also. And people say, oh, well, that's about church discipline. Yes, it is about church discipline. But we also think when the church is united, when the church of God's people are united, and we who have received the Holy Spirit, like what the temple used to stand for in the Old Testament, there is a presence that God has with us in the midst of believers, This is a type of unity we can't experience elsewhere. It's beautiful, and it was designed to be that way. And that we are united not just to Jesus himself, but to his church, as his body and as his beloved bride. So where do we go from there? This is probably like, I guess not really my next point, but like the part two of the sermon curtains close and the curtains reopen again. Within Christ's perfect church that he has built, he has saved every single person who has been called to faith. None of us are saving ourselves out here. He has built his church. He has saved all of the members of it. He is keeping us together. He has promised to redeem and perfect us in due time. And in his church, as we see in scripture, he has designed it that in His body, there should be love and encouragement and blessing. Because in God's church, though flawed and imperfect, it is covered by the grace and the love of God. Uh, Turn with me to James 4, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 11, if you are able. James 4, verse 11. 11. We're going to go to uh, just verse 12. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you 
to judge another. I love that start of verse 12. There is one lawgiver, it's Jesus, who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to try to step in that place? I think a couple years ago, I had to ask myself why I don't like Quentin Tarantino movies. Because everyone loves them. Everyone, okay, not everyone, but a lot of people love them. And I just could never get around to like actually sitting down and enjoying it. And it's just like, I, I've, I, I've tried and I had to stop halfway through. And I've realized what bothers me so much about his movies is the violence. It's so violent, it's just, just unnecessary amounts of violence. And then me being a, being a weirdo trying to theologize everything, I thought like violence has to be such a stark like sign of the great fall in which we live. Because even when we look at like Genesis, like the first time we really see how bad humans got after the fall is like a dude kills his brother like immediately after that happens like immediate violence. And I just thought, like, how is violence such this, this, this amazing indicator of our fall from grace as humans? And then as I was thinking today, or not today, but as I was, as I was thinking through this sermon, I thought, how much greater, how much greater is violence, not just against those who were made in the image of God, but violence against the beloved of God? Violence against God's beautiful, beloved church. Now, many of us were not spiritually like born here at mission, right? Like we've been around for a few years. We've been kicking it, having a great time. But a lot of you guys have come from different churches, different backgrounds and things like that. Some of you guys may have been raised Catholic. Maybe some of you were raised, you know, in different other circles. A lot of variety, a lot of diversity here, which I think is a wonderful thing. And many of us can look back and say, okay, I went to this church a few years ago. It was, it was all right. It actually helped me in learning this, but ultimately not great. And some of us can look back and say, no, I actually went to this church, and this was the, this was the effect that it had on me to this day, and I carry that wound with me. You know, a lot of us have, you know, I think churches are like relationships. It's not a matter of if you have baggage, it's how much baggage you have, right? But I mean, and, and this, this probably 1,000% goes without saying, but I am tremendously grateful for literally every single person who comes into our doors, even if it's for a single Sunday. I'm hopeful that God will minister to that person for whatever it is that they need. But I, I just need to go on record and say that like Mission Church is not God's remnant of his true people. <laughs> like the, we are not the only ones who got it right out here, guys, like I understand that like maybe the specific things that we do as a church might just be what, what resonate and what draw you in. And that's beautiful. But we cannot develop this mentality that like mission, what they're doing, whoo, let's just, they are, they're knocking it out of the park. Every other church, please don't, don't, don't put us into that place. I think we need to acknowledge that there are churches um, literally around the world, but also throughout time that have uh, hymnals and they have dress codes and their pastors can't wear hats <laughs> and they have organs and they have priests and uh, they have uh, political opinions and they have vaccine opinions 
And they have greeters that stand outside. And they have youth pastors that tell maybe not the funniest jokes. And they have conferences called uh, Revolutionize and After Spark and things like that. But the thing is, if it's faith that unites us as people, if it's faith that unites us as children of God, then not, not, not all of the conference names or greeters or all of these little differences could actually separate that. If it's faith that unites us, then what is there to separate us? They are still, through faith in Jesus, our brothers and our sisters in Christ. And you're saying, but John, don't you know that there are churches out there that don't actually preach the gospel? And I would say to that, you're a thousand percent right. I agree with you, because it's, it's true. There are churches out there that use Jesus just as a, you know, as a launching pad for something else. It's means to an end. It's not the true biblical gospel. Can I say that? Yes, a thousand percent I'll say that. But why does that not uh, uh, diffuse or, 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 or uh, negate what I just said? Because that's the dividing line. It's the gospel, and it's only the gospel. If the gospel is what saves us, if the gospel is what defines who true believers are, then who are we to look at anyone differently if they are a believer in Christ? Who are we to withhold love and, 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 and goodness and encouragement and, and blessing towards anyone, especially if they're a believer in Christ? The passage that I read from James was James not talking about every single person that these people were talking to when it said, don't speak evil of one another, brethren. He's talking about the church. He's saying, among, in your midst, do not speak evil of people. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that James is giving them free license to speak evil of those outside of the church. Of course, that's not true. But what he's specifically focusing on is, is, is brethren, do not speak evil. Do not slander each other. Do not tell lies on each other. Do not gossip about each other. Do not criticize to tear down each other. You are the beloved church of Jesus. Jesus is jealous over his church. He is jealous over those he loves. He would not tolerate such cruel words towards those he loves. We talked about um, oh, geez, why did I even put this in my notes? Uh, a couple weeks ago at a staff meeting, um, Mike was there. We talked about uh, this idea of like deconstruction. Deconstruction is such a wild can of worms to open because I, I think it's like so many other words in the, in the Christian realm, like evangelical and fundamental. Like it just, it's lost its meaning because it's said in so many different contexts. Nobody actually knows what it really means when people say, I'm deconstructing my faith or I'm, I'm thinking about deconstruction or whatever the case may be. But the, the, the premise of deconstruction seems to be especially for those who were raised in the church or who have been in the church for a very long time, it's kind of like a way where you like step out of the bubble, kind of reanalyze. Maybe you can like apply a little bit more of a critical eye towards things in the church that you hadn't before. And then hopefully you return 
And now it's like, you know, you were able to trim off all the unhealthy things about the faith that you had kind of gathered along the way. And I think that's healthy. I do. I, I've acknowledged that during my time coming up as a Christian, I've 1,000% needed to like actually pause and reassess because it wasn't like I was ripping pages out of my Bible to do so. That The point was actually to realign myself, one, more intimately with the gospel, but also by not r- ripping up scripture to do so. It was to actually make myself more of a Christian, not to just do my own thing better. And so I think in this way, it's actually super helpful, and I think it should be done responsibly and, and preferably, I wouldn't even say preferably, necessarily in community and not in isolation. A thousand percent, I would add that. But I think it's a beautiful thing, and I think it's a way that Christians and, and God is using uh, uh, believers to kind of like just, just shed a lot of things that we acquire from churches that, that aren't helpful or aren't actually conducive to our walk with Christ. I think it's important. But what I often see, I, I, maybe I won't even say often, I don't want to slander, but what I have seen before um, probably from following too many Twitter pages, is people who uh, de- go through this process of deconstruction and then they just rip the church to pieces as a result. They just completely tear it apart. Like now the church is defined by the abuse that they received. It's not anything like conditional to their specific environment. Now it's like the entire church is guilty of these things. And here's the thing. I will not stand and defend ways that the church has been harmful because all you have to do is, is, is you know, go on Google for 10 seconds. I mean, this, this Mars Hill podcast that everybody's talking about, also super good, um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a perfect example of people within the church who, who on paper had fairly solid views of scripture and theology, but who completely abused power and did so not for the love of not not to love and, and to beautify the church, but in a way that harmed it. So I can't stand and say that like, oh yeah, uh, you know. I think you know because too many people talk about the church like it's grandma, like you know everybody knows that you know grandma's got some uh, you know got some skeletons in her closet. Like she's she's got some some things where she's kind of hurt the family in not so many ways. But hey, you can't talk about grandma, you know. She's, she's like the matriarch of the family. You can't do that. I think we need to stop that. I think we can be honest enough to say, look, God is strong enough to stand on truth and his church and with his church at the same time. God is 1,000% not calling us to whitewash um, and like create this false rose-colored image of his church. But in doing so, we don't lose the fact that the church is the beloved bride of Christ. And that while many are in the church who are not like working or who are not actually loving Christ with their actions, minds, or lives at all, many of them are. And many of them are doing so imperfectly. And so we have to be cautious, not of defending the sins of the church. I don't think we should do that at all. But of losing sight of the fact that the church is a collection of broken people. That you can put faith in Jesus and still be not perfect. In fact, that happens to be all of us. 
And I also need to say, there's nothing wrong with having issues or identifying areas that need to be corrected. There's nothing wrong with that. That's literally what we're seeing in the book of Galatians. That's what we see throughout a lot of the New Testament is Paul writing and saying, hey, like you guys need to correct this. You are actually hurting the gospel and hurting the church and what you're doing and what you're preaching and what you're practicing. So there's nothing wrong with identifying error within the church. In fact, I think it's good. But we have to remember that any kind of rebuke that God offers to his people is just that. It's a rebuke offered to his people. His people, who he like, has possession of, who he loves, his children. I think this is the beauty of the passage that we've read from today. We're given this beautifully clear portrait of just how wide this net of faith and redemption is over us. That again, all who are baptized into Jesus are actually united with Jesus and in so doing also united with the rest of the church. These walls that made former enemies enemies actually removed so that we can walk together in love. Disagreement at times for sure. I can't walk with a, you know, can't think of a, I, I don't know, like people from the Church of Christ, they don't worship with instruments. I'm not going to agree with them. I'm not going to pretend that we don't have disagreements, but we can walk in love. We can walk in fellowship. I can walk with him, loving him, knowing that he is loved dearly by God, just as he can love me the same way. There's this uh, story as we, as we start to close. There's this story from World War I. It's like one of the coolest stories. I think this was in uh, 1915, so the war had been going on for a long time. And if you've ever read or listened to much about World War I, you know that the scale and the violence and the brutality of this conflict was literally something the world had never seen before. There was so much new technology that was just really, really good at ripping young men to pieces that it the, 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 even the psychological strain it was placing on these countries and families and people was enormous. So around 1915, maybe 16, don't quote me, they were very hopeful as we, they went, entered into winter that the conflict would be over by Christmas time because, you know, everyone wants to go home for Christmas. It wasn't, though. But there are stories... On the, in, the, in the European front between British and German soldiers that on the day of Christmas, they would wave like flags to each other from trench to trench. And cautiously, they would emerge from their trenches and greet each other. Enemies who had just been killing each other, but recognizing that it was Christmas. And they would come out of their trenches and they would greet each other and they would shake hands and they would find, you know, somebody on the other side looking for a German who speaks English or a British dude who speaks German. And they'd shake hands. And they would talk with each other. And they would sing Christmas songs. And they'd exchange gifts. And they, would, they played soccer. And then when the day was over, they went back to their trenches and they continued what they were doing before that. 
But I think what's so beautiful about that was that in the midst of the fighting and in the midst of the violence, they were able to recognize through the fatigue of all of that, that the one thing that united them was not their culture or their nationality or their background, but it was the fact that they were human beings. They were young guys who liked soccer and happens to know a few Christmas songs. And in that, they were able to find a moment of peace and unity with each other. Guys, we have so much more than just common humanity with the people in our churches and the people in the church across the world. People in churches where we can say we would disagree fundamentally with these things. And you don't have to shed your disagreements or your values or your distinctions. As long as they're biblical, they're fine. But to walk in love, not superiority, not any other kind of thing, but to walk in true love with those who are greatly loved by Christ is what our call is. And it's a beautiful reflection and a beautiful remembrance that Christ's love for us is rich and it is vast and it is wide reaching and it is beautiful. And I would say what better way to conclude this than to come together at the Lord's table. The Lord's table is such a wonderful thing to me, to, to all of us, because like 2,000 years of church history, the church has been meeting on the Lord's day and celebrating this, celebrating the sacrifice of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, the new life that we can have as believers in him. And now we get to do something that every church has been doing for thousands of years that, you know, a hundred years ago they were doing this, that 2,000 miles away from us, they are doing this. We are coming together to remember our good and loving Savior. So, Right now, we're going to uh, transition into the latter part of our service. Uh, I'm going to pray. I'm going to leave two minutes of confession for all of us. It's going to be complete silence. Please take that time to just bring whatever you need to the Lord as you prepare for the Lord's Supper. Don't come up there with, with, with anger or, or disputes in your heart, but come to God with it first. Lay it down. Bring it to the cross. Get that washed. And then... Uh, We'll have the Lord's Supper. The band is going to bring us a few more songs where we can worship musically. And then uh, we have a tablet in the back for giving. Uh, let's pray. Father God, um, we are so grateful to be a part of your beautiful church. We are so grateful to be a part of your church. Because often, God, it's, it's so easy to just like isolate ourselves and just kind of like me and Jesus versus the world. And that's just not the way that you designed it to be. You have called us as individuals, but as individuals joining a body, and that is a body of unity and love. And so we're so grateful because you love us. We're so grateful because you care for us and you keep us and you promise to keep us. And so, Lord, may you, may you bring out whatever needs to be spoken to you, Father. Whatever, uh, whatever we need to say to you right now, Father, may we bring it to you. And then may we enjoy the beautiful sacrament that is the Lord's Supper. We would remember the goodness of the, the moment that you uh, built that bridge to reconnect us, though we were so far apart. Um, bless us now, Father, and give us the, the confidence of forgiveness when we come to you in confession.